think all of our song and worship among one another today has been tremendously encouraging, hasn't it? Uh, certainly preparatory uh, for the preaching of God's Word. Uh, let's bow in a word of prayer as uh, we prepare to hear from God's Word this morning, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into the perfect law of liberty and consider it. Help us, Lord, today to not just be faithful hearers, but faithful doers. We know that prayer is certainly the catalyst, as it were, to help us not just know, but do. We need your wisdom, and we need your help. We're thankful that the Spirit of God that indwells us is always ready, never slumbering or sleeping, to aid us in our understanding of the significance of your word and of your person, to illuminate our pathway, to live our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go back to the book of Job this morning. It's great to see Rick back in church today. Hello, brother. It's been a while. I'm glad you're feeling strong enough. Uh, it's wonderful to see you. I congratulate Pastor Steve and Sharla on the arrival of little Willa. I'm sure they're live streaming today. So hello, guys. Are they here? Pastor Steve's not here, is he? I didn't think so. Anyways. Good to see you all. Thanks for sharing the pictures. Wonderful new gift, a little Willa to your home. And uh, we were unable before to welcome our guests. I'm just going to take a moment to do that, if that's okay. I know you're already in the book of Job. If you're here this morning and you've uh, never received a gift from us, even though you've been here at another service, we'd like to give you a gift. We're not going to have you stand. We're just going to have you raise your hand. Or maybe someone that brought you this morning could raise their hand for you and we could give them a gift slip up your hand real quick we have ushers in the back that are ready to give you that gift anyone at all uh, here for the first time this morning would like to have knowledge of your guest visit with us keep your hands up high and, uh, thank you for being here inside you'll find a little card you're welcome to fill that out and leave that with us in the pocket of the chair in front of you or maybe give that to me or uh, one of our ushers or pastors after the service. As you head out this morning, uh, as you're a guest today, over to the left, we have a little fellowship area. We'd love to get to know you, maybe send you on your way with a hot beverage, uh, get to ask any questions of Pastor Mike or myself or any one of the folks around there. We'd love to help you get to know us a little bit better and uh, be as transparent as we possibly can. Uh, just Super, super glad that you're here. This has been a month of prayer emphasis at Grace. And the folks that put together our prayer folder for every Wednesday night said this is the first time that they could remember where the amount of praises on the prayer outnumbered the amount of prayer requests on the prayer folder. I think that's a big deal. I think that's certainly fruit of our emphasis on prayer. So finish well, okay? Uh, all of us have been praying about the same things. If you have a little prayer book, if not, you can pick one up by the door on your way out. 
It's been a blessing for me to know that I'm praying in chorus with you each day on these things. And uh, not just that, but the weekly prayer folder we're given on Wednesday evenings. We're seeing God answer tremendous prayer. And from a number of you, it's been my experience, and I know it's yours as well, uh, that I've had more evangelistic opportunities to share the gospel with people in this month than I have really in the previous year or two. I hope that's been your reality as well. It's wonderful to talk about uh, our wonderful Jesus, isn't it? Amen. Uh, in a world that's certainly hopeless and increasingly growing more and more that way, it's wonderful to share about our hope in Jesus, isn't it? I hope your life exudes his joy. I hope your life gives reason for people to ask you about why you're joyful Amen. so that you can tell them the the who of your joy. That's 1 Peter 3.15, isn't it? There's got to be a reason why they ask you about the hope that lies within you. The only reason they're going to ask you is if they see it so that you can talk of him and how wonderful he is to you. Certainly our world needs more and more of a witness of the light of Christ and and I know you love to be that, and, and you are that. And uh, we'll look forward to continuing to do that. I know we've got just a week or so left in our Monday night, Tuesday morning. Uh, Tuesday night, men's and women's Bible studies. And the Tuesday morning ladies study, they're focusing on prayer this month, or for this section. Uh, so please remember to join uh, those groups as well. I want you to remember to pray uh, for Quan. Huang and his family, uh, his folks in the Carolinas are going through some tremendous health difficulties right now, and Quan's needed to be there, and I believe his family joined him there this week, but a lot of, a lot of strength and wisdom needed for them as he cares for his dad and their situation there. Okay? All right. If you want to write down the name of two commentaries, um, if you want to know, there's probably 15 to 20 sources that I'm studying as I go through the book of Job that I've been studying for months now. Uh, I have a dissertation on the book of Job. I have uh, my seminary materials on the book of Job, on wisdom literature. Uh, seminary professors that have given us syllabi that are yay thick. Hundreds of pages on wisdom literature. Um, We're going to be studying God today in the book of Job. I'm so thankful that uh, Pastor Mike and, the, and our music folks have really highlighted him in our, in our worship today. There's a lot of truths that you sang this morning we're going to see in the book of Job as we preach. Um, but one of the best books I've ever, or commentaries I've ever written or read on Job is by a friend of mine, actually. His name is Leighton Talbert, and it's called Beyond Suffering. And I appreciate the title. Once you read through the whole commentary, you'll appreciate the title. Because there's something that we all learn. There's something of someone we all learn that is much higher and much beyond just mere suffering. And that's our creator. So I encourage you to get that book. Much of the introductory material that we've been sharing with you 
is sourced in not only his book, but another commentary just called Job by Lindsay Wilson. And I think you'd really appreciate Lindsay Wilson's uh, commentary as well. There's a handful of others we're utilizing, uh, but those two among syllabi, among dissertations, among uh, a lot of different people. I believe Lindsay Wilson in his introduction highlighted I believe I counted over 27 different ways to interpret the book of Job clear back to the first century. I'm not preaching on that, okay? We'll save that for a Great Lakes Bible Institute class. But it really is fascinating to see from the church fathers all the way forward how many ways there are to interpret this book. So you have to take all this information, you really have to take a funnel approach at what is really uh, thus saying, thus saith the Lord through this book. And I I trust we're on the right pathway here. But Talbert shares with us really what he calls uh, more of a direction right towards the bullseye of the book. And I stated that last week. He says, our faith relationship to a God who is sovereign, always just, kind of thinking of our hymns this morning now, aren't you? And unfailingly compassionate, despite all contrary appearances and his right to allow us to suffer without compromising any of his attributes is the underlying theme of the book of Job. Out of all of the books that I've read, I think Leighton summarizes what he calls the bullseye of the book pretty succinctly right there. Our faith relationship to a God who is sovereign, always just, and unfailingly compassionate despite all contrary appearances, and his right to allow us to suffer without compromising any of his attributes is the underlying theme. When I was a young boy, I used to love to go to creeks and catch tadpoles, or little bodies of water. I don't know if you did that. Uh, and I would take my mom's uh, canning ball jars, and uh, go out, catch the tadpoles in a little net, put them in the ball jar, um, add some creek water to it, and I just wanted to see the metamorphosis of that tadpole into what tadpoles become. I wasn't often successful at seeing that happen. I was really good at taking the life from tadpoles, <laughs> not watching the transformation. But I can remember after bringing those big ball jars home of creek water with tadpoles in it. I'd come back into my bedroom hours later and that jar of cloudy water now looked drinkable. The, the sediment of that creek water over hours had settled into the bottom of that jar. And I could go over to that jar, pick it up, shake it a little bit, and you know what, they have the sediment on the bottom of that jar just clouds the water once again. When I think about the sediment in the bottom of that jar, I think of me, and I think of all of us, because all of us are like that jar of water. We all have sediment in our lives. When God appoints suffering to come into our life to shake up our lives, that sediment can cloud our water and I think when you've read the book of Job together over the last couple weeks, you've seen some of that sediment. 
cloud Job's thoughts, cloud his, his thinking. And you begin to wonder why, just like Job's friends did. How could Job be a God-fearer and still sound like that? But I want that thought to be a comfort to you. Because many of us, as we grew up in our Christian lives, when we encountered suffering... It was communicated to us that maybe we weren't allowed to have any cloudy water, any sediment. And that we just had to count it all joy when you fall into, you know, pick up your bootstraps and just, just walk through it. And my goodness, you know, I think Job ends up counting all things joyful, but he has some rough times. But I think I want you to know, I want you to be encouraged as you struggle through various degrees of suffering, that you can still be labeled by God a God-fearer and still have a little cloudy water from time to time. What a merciful God we serve. What a merciful God that Job served. And I'm so thankful that while man looks on the outward appearance, God knows the heart. God knows Job's heart. Even though he sees the sediment, he knows he's a righteous man. He knows he's a God-fearing man. He knows that sediment's going to settle once again. Because we're fallen, but redeemed by grace, there's always going to be sediment in your life. When people look at you, they say, wow, that's a person that fears God. That's a person that loves God. That's a person that walks with God. They're seeing the clear water. And that's okay for them to see that. We prayed James 1.25 in the beginning of our sermon, right? Let us not just be faithful hearers, but doers. Right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. How Paul says that, we, the Thessalonian people ought to know more and more how to walk and to please God. People that walk with God, people that please God, boy, that's clear water of faith. But the most mature believers' lives are shaken. And it's not uncommon for any of us to sit down with mature believers who are going through ridiculously difficult God-appointed times and hear them say things they're thinking that don't sound like them. That moment of the sediment speaking does not define them. God defines them in Jesus Christ. Their walk is proof of God defining them in Jesus Christ. And we love them patiently through that. We pray with them patiently through that trial because we know by faith that sediment will settle and they'll continue to fear and walk with God. So it is possible to fear God and allow him to shake up our world. Let the sediment of a redeemed fallen nature rise up only to let grace by faith help the sediment to settle and to aid us in understanding God and his purposes for man in our own lives.
We said last week, Lindsay quotes, Lindsay Wilson says, sometimes the Lord has to take drastic measures to get people to talk about him seriously and to seek him in earnest. To move away from our myopic obsession, he says, with our circumstances to something and someone much bigger outside ourselves and over our circumstances is necessary for all of us. He goes on to say Job's suffering is the occasion for communicating far larger spiritual issues than our problem of personal pain, end quote. So when we come closer to the theme of the book of Job, we move past why we suffer, how we respond to suffering, and how we respond has everything to do with how we know God. He goes on to say throughout the whole chapters of the dialogue till the epilogue where we find God's divine response the Lord is seeking a delicate balance he seeks to redirect Job's energies without crushing him if the Lord is too harsh he would appear to endorse the views of Job's friends as we said last week if the Lord is too soft then Job will not hear what is needed so both God's words and his appearance provide a platform for which we can view the book as a whole I hope, as we encourage you to do over the last several weeks, as you read through the book of Job, you've been underlining his names, God's names, in the book of Job. As we said last week, over 180 times, God is mentioned in these 42 chapters. I want to study our Creator throughout this book today. And I want to study Him in terms of His greatness and in terms of His goodness. I'm just going to ask a real quick question by a raised hand. How many of you had the privilege of growing up in a Christian day school, maybe kindergarten through sixth grade? Could you raise your hand? I want everyone to look around. Keep your hands up real high. All right. Real, everyone look around. Real high. Some of them are real short. I don't know about. All right. Good. <laughs> short arms. All right. Thank you. How many of you did not raise your hand? around everybody looks like an overwhelming majority all right you put your hands down how many of you had the opportunity to study in a christian college raise your hand all right looks like more hands in a christian college than there was a christian day school how many of you studied in a secular college of some degree right overwhelming majority okay how many of you have been saved in the room less than 10 years would you raise your hand? Real high. Everyone look around. All right. About a third, fourth. Okay. Why am I asking these things? Well, we are in a culture, my friends, where our knowledge of God um, needs to increase. <laughs> our understanding of who he is needs to increase. The overwhelming majority of our flock didn't grow up maybe in a Sunday school or a Christian school environment where they learned catechism or they learned theology proper much at all. For a lot of our congregation that's been saved less than 10 years, I'll pretty much guarantee you outside preaching, teaching, the foundations book, and maybe the walk, many of you don't know much about God in a formal sense. 
in a didactic way. So when we talk about him in the book of Job this morning, we're going to talk about your creator, our father, in terms of his greatness and his goodness. As a newer believer, when you're going to study God in the scriptures, those are the two ways we study him. And we're going to look at all the ways that Job or his friends or God himself describe God in terms of his greatness or his goodness. So this may be new to many of you. If you want to hold your finger here in the book of Job, don't leave it. Just go over and put your other finger or one of your other fingers in Psalm 139 because we're going to be bouncing back and forth there a couple times this week. And I want to let you know, I'm okay with going slow through this because we took the poll and you saw the poll. There's a lot of people in our church that I think have really never sat under the formal teaching of theology proper, who God is, his nature, his person, his purpose, his character. And I think it's good for all of us to learn this together, especially if we're going to understand this book. So what of God's greatness? John 4, 24. Jesus said, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. The first thing we understand about the attributes of God's greatness is that he is spiritual. He is a spiritual being not having a physical nature. As such, God is not bound by the limitation of a body. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. If you want to flip over there, if you're already there. The psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, and if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not too dark, is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. God is a spirit. Go over to Job chapter 10 and verse number 4. These are Job's own words. Job chapter 10 and verse 4. He asks a rhetorical question because he knows the answer. Have you eyes of flesh? And the answer clearly is no. Or do you see as a man sees? And the answer is no. Because God is spirit, he is not bound by the same limitations 
that one with a physical body is or has. It's so critical to understand that in relationship to God's spirituality. He is not bound by the same limitations that one with a physical body is or has. The Spirit of God is the originator of life. He is life. He is eternal life. And he is the sustainer and creator of physical life. So God is spiritual. Secondly, God is personal. God is a person. Often when you talk about theology proper and you're going to be talking about God, we start with that. We start with God is a person. So let's talk about what God is not. He is a person, so he is not a force. He has a moral nature. He's intelligent. He's self-conscious, self-aware. He has a will. He has emotion. You can go back and read Job 38 to 41 and see very clearly the reality of God's personhood. over with me to Job 38, 18 real quickly. Maybe you've gone through the words of the Lord and you've underlined um, all the times he asks Job, why, or how, or have you? Let's go back up here for a little context to verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like the clay under the seal. And they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked there is, from the wicked their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you have you seen the gates of the deep of darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me, if you know all this. God's in a communication relationship. And Job is in a communication relationship with God that is very, very personal. And he craves that relationship and the personal reality of it. Other wisdom literature you can write down and cross-reference here in your notes is Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 12. God delights in those who are characterized by truth and righteousness. Ecclesiastes, we studied that two years ago, if you remember. God's personality is reflected in what he despises. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 2, 
Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 6, we understand God's personhood by what angers him. We also know from Job chapter 2 and verse 26 and chapter 7 and verse 26, we also know what pleases him. So God is a person. God is a person. God is a living being. He's spiritual, he's personal, and he's alive, and he's well. He is life. Go with me to Job chapter 38 and verses 4 to 7. Let's see what God says of himself here. Again. Where were you when I laid the foundation to the earth, Job? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? God is a living being. God's telling Job here, the point when you weren't alive, I was. And I was creating. I am the person that lived before the foundations of the earth were established. Unlike his creation that drew its existence from God. God was not derived from any other person or thing. Since it is impossible to have anything creating itself, God could not have created himself. Consequently, God is self-existent and he's eternal. He's infinite. God, by God's infinity, we, we understand, or we should understand, that this means he is unlimited and cannot be limited. There are other attributes associated with God's infinite nature. And those are the attributes of greatness that we call omnipresence, omniscience, wisdom, omnipotence, and freedom. Those are all attributes of God's greatness as well. He's everywhere. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's all-powerful. And he's completely free. He's completely free. What do we mean by omnipresent? Well, you can write down what Zophar said of God's omnipresence in Job 11, verses 7 through 9. You can go over there with me if you'd like. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They're as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than the grave or Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. God is unlimited in terms of space. Finite objects, created objects, 
created persons like you and me. We're local. God is not located in any space. God is spirit. He has no physical characteristics that can take up space. As such, God is present everywhere. He's all-knowing. He's infinitely all-knowing. God's knowledge, therefore, is not unlimited. Go to Psalm, back to Psalm 139 if your finger is still there, and let's read the first six verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. He's all-knowing. Job recognized this truth when he maintained in Job chapter 28 and verse 24 that God knew everything under the heavens where he says, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God is all-wise. God is all-wise. By wisdom, what do we mean here? By wisdom, we mean that God acts in light of all the facts and in light of correct values. Let's take from a systematic theology book written by a fellow named Erickson in his description of God's wisdom. Job recognized God's wisdom in his speech in chapter 28, specifically chapter 28 and verse 23 of wisdom. Job says God understands its way and he knows its place. And by wisdom, God created the heaven and the earth. God's wisdom is a dominant theme in God's first speech that you've read already on your own in Job chapter 38, beginning in verse 4 through chapter 39 in verse 30. In wisdom, God created the universe. That's Job 38, 4 to 11. He manages the world in Job 38, verses 12 to 38. And the wild animals in Job chapter 38, verses 39 through chapter 39 in verse 30. And just going through God's rhetorical questions in chapters 38 and 39 will settle your heart because you can't answer his questions. You never thought an unanswered question could settle your heart, but when God asks them, it does. That's the intention because it's to demonstrate to us his infinite nature and relationship to his knowledge he's all powerful we say god's power is unlimited what we mean is that god can do anything that is consistent with his purpose and his plan god can do anything that's consistent with his purpose and his plan 
We know that from Job chapter 41, verses 1 through 8, where God holds all power over all that he's created. As a matter of fact, let's look at Job 41 real quick. I think it's, I think it's kind of reverently cute what God does here <laughs> to, to focus Job. Uh, maybe you kind of chuckled uh, when you read it. I'm sure Job wasn't chuckling. He was in too much pain. But when I read it, I thought, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? If you don't know what Leviathan is, there's a lot of discussion about what Leviathan is or was. Um, whatever it is or was, probably was, it was really big. Some people have debated what kind of dinosaur it was, but this is a massive beast. Right? That's all we know. Can you draw him out with a fish hook or press down on his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Or will he speak to you soft words? So apparently somewhat ferocious nature of this beast will he make a covenant with you will he take for him a servant forever will you play with him as with a bird will you bind him with your maidens will the traders bargain over him will they divide him among the merchants can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. <laughs> Anyways. God has power over Leviathan. He's its creator. He's all-powerful. He's infinitely free as well. What do we mean by that? He's infinitely free. Have you ever heard of God being free? Right. We're not here to debate anything about anthropology, the study of man in Scripture, but many of you would hold to the reality that man is free. God created man with free will. That's also for a Great Lakes Bible Institute classroom. Not for this morning. But I will tell you, God is free. He's infinitely free. We studied that in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 to 18, and Ecclesiastes 8, verses 10 to 17. And the book of Job strongly affirms the freedom of God. Hang on with me here. God's freedom means that God will not be bound by anything outside of himself. God is only limited by his nature and his will. Erickson says God's decisions and actions are not determined by consideration of any factors outside himself. They are simply a matter of his own free choice. Where well, we see that in Job chapter 1 and 2. In those chapters, it might seem on the surface that the so-called wager between God and Satan may be a denial of God's freedom. However, the author of Job is quite clear that God was responsible for prompting this account when he said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? We highlighted that last week and we read it. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God. 
and shuns evil. God clearly prompts this heavenly encounter. God freely chose to allow this to happen to Job even though he was so genuine in his faith. Job was never told, according to this book, that God permitted Satan to do this to him. For whatever purposes, which neither Job nor we fully comprehend, we must recognize that this was part of God's free design for the life of Job. And Job's friends believed that God was free, but in their speeches they spoke as if he was not. One of the great dangers of Bible interpretation is saying something right about God or his word and then applying it improperly to a particular situation. You can detonate a theological bomb in people's lives and flocks' lives and, and blow them up and not even know it. Job's friends say a lot of things right about God. At times they're right about his freedom, but often they're wrong about this particular attribute of God. Because they're they're saying that he's bound to discipline like he's disciplining Job with his suffering because of Job's sin. And that's not what's happening at all. So they're binding God to only allow God's people to suffer because of their sin. And God says to them, no, I'm much more free than that. I can choose because I'm completely free. I'm not bound by what you think I do only in particular situations. I'm bound by what I do in my character, my purpose for anyone's life. And we should notice that the defense of God's administration of justice by Job's friends was, was a denial of God's freedom. His friends had maintained that there was a strict cause and effect relationship between one's actions and conceive, and, and, and conceive of any reason that the Almighty would have brought this about in his life. Job was convinced that this simplistic understanding of what many call retribution theology. God always punishes sin. He, he does. It's not what he was doing in Job's life. Was incorrect. In agreement with this, God was teaching that a simplistic understanding of retribution theology was not part of his agenda at all, and that God was free, Hubbard and Bush say this, that God was free to enter into Satan's test and tell none of the participants about it, to time his intervention and determine its agenda. He was free not to answer Job's goading questions nor agree with the friend's high-sounding doctrines. Above all, he was free to care enough to confront Job and to forgive his friends. God is free. God is free. And God is incomprehensible. Again, if you haven't grown up in an environment of teaching catechism or Bible doctrines as we knew it or Bible class or whatnot, we're learning about God and his attributes. God is 
incomprehensible. The book of Job strongly affirms the mystery of God's will. God's rhetorical questions directed again to Job in chapters 38 to 42 clearly affirm this truth. Man's inability to comprehensively know the mind of God reflects the attribute of his incomprehensibility. Though what we do know by special revelation, the Bible, right, is accurate, it is not a full knowledge about all the truth of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 145 and verse 3 that no one could fathom God's greatness. Solomon says the same in Proverbs 25 and verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. This is strongly emphasized in the books of Job and Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 1 through chapter 8 and verse 17, man cannot know how God is presently working and neither can he predict how God will work in the future. That's the message of chapter 9. Verse 1 through verse 11, chapter 11 and verse 6. I have an echo. Did I wake up someone's Siri? All right. And someone's hearing aid's not working because they can't turn it off. Or they're trying to. All right. It's always good to have an echo of God's word, isn't it? Right? Double powerful. Man's inability to comprehensively know the mind of God reflects the attribute of his incomprehensibility. I'm trying to regain my spot in my transcript here. All right. Again, this is the point of man not being able to fathom how God administers justice in an earthly sphere either. That's Job chapter 7, verses 15 to 18, and chapter 10, verses 10 to 17. Though we know more details about the heavenly encounter initiated by God between himself and Satan in the book of Job, we do not fully comprehend why God allowed this to take place. That's true, isn't it? And those are the attributes of God's greatness. And they've always humbled me. They've always humbled us. The attributes of God's goodness have always endeared us to him. Those attributes have those two influences. The attributes of his greatness humble us and the attributes of his goodness endear us to him because the attributes of his goodness are the attributes of our person that we can mimic in the way we live every day. Purity. Integrity, love, truthfulness, faithfulness. These are things that we can do as God's created us in his image to do and recreated us by grace to do. We're going to take an exhaustive look at the attributes of God's goodness, those attributes that endear us to him next week. But I want to finish here real quickly with a simple illustration that I think will help us understand 
why we need to understand God more in light of the whole theme of this book. I don't know if you enjoyed chemistry in high school. Uh, I I did okay in chemistry only because I was a good memorizer. I can't tell you a blooming thing I understood, but I could memorize well. Right? Periodic chart, boom, done. Right? Greek and Hebrew were to me were a piece of cake because I could, boy, I could memorize. I understood more about them than I did chemistry, but nonetheless. <laughs> What's a catalyst? Remember a catalyst? The catalyst is a substance that increases the rate of a chemical reaction between elements without itself undergoing any permanent chemical change. Lost, right? Hang on. In non-scientific wording, a catalyst initiates a process or event without being directly involved in or changed by the process or event. Hang on. There's an author that I read that did a great job explaining why suffering is a catalyst that's necessary in helping man understand who God is. He describes the story of Job beginning with God and man in what he calls a crucible. The catalyst of suffering is poured in. The debate does not alleviate the suffering. It remains until God himself removes it. He does not remove the suffering until after all the issues in this relationship have been resolved. So suffering in the book of Job functions as a catalyst that initiates the relational interaction between God and man, and it's good because it compels us by grace to consider God and who he is and his attributes of his greatness and his goodness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we contemplate these attributes of your infinite personhood, help us, Lord, to rest in understanding and being blessed by understanding who you are in your infinite personhood. Help us, Lord, to be able to practice Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 more successfully because of what we know about your greatness. Help us, Lord, to trust in you with all of our heart and not lean unto our own understanding. And in all of our ways, acknowledge you as you make our paths straight. And Lord, prepare our hearts for next Lord's Day morning when we'll discuss together those sweet attributes of your goodness that endear us to you and you to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.